Well, good morning, Bridgeway. Um, My name is Pastor Matt, and I'm the high school pastor here, and I've had the incredible honor of getting a chance to lead this high school ministry um, by the power and grace of the Holy Spirit of God. And uh, to be a part, this is our fourth year doing a takeover weekend where our teenagers and our staff um, help out in leading the entire weekend service, and we are so blessed by them. And what's been cool is that each service, we've actually had different of my volunteer guys that we've been building up. I'm preaching in the other services. So you are getting the special treat of you're the only ones that get to hear me this morning. Everyone else is hearing a different guy. So next service is Cliff Woodward. Last night, Brett Dans and David Kuhn preached. And it's because our church cares about developing disciples and developing disciple makers. And uh, we've been watching these guys be equipped and they have brought the word of God and they did excellent jobs last night. They're actually too good. I think I'm going to have to kill them. And... Uh, <laughs> And so, but I'm, I'm so proud of them. And so, uh, but we're in part 16 of the identity series and, uh, we've been going through Ecclesiastes and who better to finish off a very sombering book than the high school pastor. And so, uh, so we're going to be diving right in. You can be turning in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 12 right now and uh, we'll be going through it. But a lot of us know this feeling of waiting around for something. Right, and, and especially those times when you're waiting around for something because you can't find the motivation to get up and act now. I, I know that one time my wife was asking me to fix something that was running in our toilet, and I kept stalling and waiting, and I couldn't motivate, motivate myself to go do it because plumbing scares me. Because to me, water is going to end up everywhere. And then finally, one day, I just got up out of bed and went right over, and it was like ten minutes. I was done. Right, and the whole time I'm like, why did I wait? And somebody has said that life is what happens while we're waiting around for something else. And so the question we have for you today is, what are you waiting for? What is the something or the someone that you think is going to bring the fullest meaning in life? And what are you waiting for with that? And so to do a kind of quick overview of the series, we've been going through the book of Ecclesiastes. And and, uh, I like what Matt Chandler says when he reads this book. He goes through and he just wants to go give this guy a hug. And go, dude, I'm so sorry that life has beat you up and that you feel so somber and so depressed about things. But I also enjoy what Lance kind of set us up on in the very beginning because he talked about how the writer, the preacher, looked out and found that there's nothing that matters here under the sun. He kept saying all is vanity, this Hebrew word havel, right? He goes, all is meaningless. It's vapor. It's mist. It just dissipates under the sun. And Lance talked about how in the end, what do you gain? How do you advance in this world? The preacher looks at everything under the sun and he says, what does this world have to offer without God? And so Lance was unpacking that and he asked the questions like, why would I worship something under the sun when I can worship a God who created the sun and is over the sun? And I want to add, and sent his son. And then Lance started off also talking about how you learn in this book that truth is truth. And you have to be able to look at what is the authority that I'm going to live by. And so when we look at this book of Ecclesiastes and what its purpose is, we look at why is this important? Why is this an important book to go through? And the reason why is because it's important that we weigh what it is we listen to and live by. If you just go through life and you go through your routine and you go through your your structure and you don't think about it, you are missing something huge. And in this book, you're receiving a series of confessions of how the preacher um, deconstructed what was traditional wisdom and the approach to life and how he experienced that himself. He experienced failure and weakness himself, and he brought an authoritative perspective from the Lord. 
And I love what Eugene Peterson says about this book. He says, this book functions more like a bath than a meal. Because when we think of wisdom literature, we think of it as nourishment of knowledge, right? That I'm going to eat some wisdom and it's going to give me equipping to live life. But this book is more of a cleansing. It's a repenting. It's a purging of illusions and feelings and ideas that will not bring us to a good final destination. And that's what the the preacher is taking us through. And it's not a new truth, but it's training people. Here is the skills of how to live out life under the sun. And what you're going to see as we go into chapter 12 is how do we live now because of the eventuality that an end is going to come. There's going to be a completion. And to realize that now, how you're living in the present, currently, here today, this week, is what matters. Some of you might watch The Office. Um, I have too many times. And there's one um, episode near the very end. It's actually the, the season finale after nine seasons. And there's a character in it named Andy Bernard. And he, he works at Cornell. And he's at a point where now he's back at Cornell getting a chance to kind of do his dream job after going through some pretty heavy and hard stuff. And he says this quote in the middle of it because he's realizing that he's going to miss all his buds at the office. And he says, I wish there was a way to know that you're in the good old days before you've actually left them. And I I talked to so many people that they were like, yeah, I cried at that part. I'm like, it was deep, but it's not cryable. (laughs) But the reality that he's bringing up is sometimes we don't realize that what's going on in the present, especially in our spiritual life, is what matters so much. And so we can't let another day go by and disappear on us. We have a purpose and an intent to know God, to fear God, to obey God. And and there's this reality, and this is what the fill in the blank is on your sheet. Now is the youngest you will ever be. It's true. Whether you're in your late 90s and you're here, or you are seven and you didn't make it into a class today, now is the youngest that you will ever be. And so how you live now matters. And, and the preacher, the, 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 the writer of Ecclesiastes, he's going to talk about youth. He did it in chapter 11. He talks about it in chapter 12. And the reason why he does that is because youth in Scripture is always a metaphor of living in the present. And unlike the book of Proverbs or the book of Job, the preacher makes it clear that youth is the ideal embodiment of what is joyful and what is vital about life, especially in a world that's fragile and quickly fading. And so there's this principle of life that we can initiate and start in our youth, but you can start it at any time. Because one of the things I hope you've learned is that youth is not an age. Yes, you can say, well, adolescence goes between here and here. No, youth is a mindset. And it's, a, it's an exuberance, it's a vitality, it's a living in the presence. I love what this guy Ed Welch says. He says, since teenagers are too old to do the things kids do and not old enough to do things adults do, young people end up doing the impossible before they can find out it's impossible. Now, some of you parents are going, I know, and I don't like that, (laughs) right? But there's something biblically that they look at it and they go, that's pretty amazing. And that's why God speaks to and uses youth so often in scripture, because they're not afraid to just go ahead. And so we're going to kind of walk through this text together, and we're first going to walk through a poem, a parable, if you will, that's super hard to go through. It's verses 1 to 8, and uh, it's considered one of the most obscure passages of Ecclesiastes. So, of course, Lance gives it to us. And and it's going to wrap up the book, but let's just start by reading verse 1, and then we're going to unpack that first part. So it says, Remember 
also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. And so he starts by just saying, hey, first thing, remember. Remember not just your past, remember your creator. And it's not remembering like a recall, like I remember a Star Trek episode, or I remember my last coffee purchase. It's this idea of active remembrance. In the Hebrew, it's this word called zakar. And it comes up in Deuteronomy a lot, because it's this, this, this remembering that God prompted Israel to remember, especially when they were in the good and comfortable times. Because that's when they had to actively remember and start living a little different, because God knew that they would settle. And it means to engage the truth of the past with one's present practice. To pay attention, to consider with the intention of obeying. So it's a responsive action. And a good example of that is what we do with anniversaries or what we do with birthdays. When you get to an anniversary, I just celebrated my 12-year anniversary with my wife this last Sunday. And one of the reasons we remember that is because my parents and her parents got married on July 31st, the same year, in Sacramento, and both went to Disneyland for their honeymoon. We didn't know that until we met. But all three of us now share the same anniversary. But on an anniversary, you don't just wake up and go, I remember that 12 years ago we got married. That was special. Right? If you're going to be living active remembrance, you're going to start practicing, leaning into that, and you're going to go, I want to celebrate this day. I want to treat you. Our first one-year anniversary, my wife and I were living in New Zealand on our one-year anniversary. And what did I do as our first active remembrance? I bought a dog. And, And here's what's even better. We lived in New Zealand. The dog's name was Gandalf. And he looks like a white wizard. It's amazing. And, and you know what? He's still alive today, 12 years later. And we love that, right? But see, this remembrance, you guys, is an active remembrance because we owe God our life. And so we remember our lives, which come and go, and we remember that they're in his hand. And who is it that we're remembering? Our creator. Not just the person that made everything beautiful and the intricacies of biology, but he is the one that is great and he's, ma- um, he's got this majesty And it's really recognizing that God is magnificent, that he's fascinating, that he's huge. And you go, I'm going to remember that, and I'm going to live by that. And so you remember for the purpose of revolutionizing your life, so that you live into God's eternal plans. And it's really easy to forget, especially with all that goes on under the sun. Amen? So many billions and trillions of things fill and occupy our hearts and our minds. And that's why God, all throughout Scripture, the Old Testament and the New Testament, gave acts of remembrance to recalibrate our lives. You just did one. Communion. And so we remember within this that we are creatures in a world ruled by God. That we are not God ourselves. We are not self-reliant. We do not dictate how and when and why things happen. We don't go around saying, yes, yes, I can do this myself. I can figure this out. I mean, if you're anything like me, You can't figure out how to set up your own printer. You can't figure out how to go through system preferences on your computer. You can't figure out most of the problems with your car. But we go up and go, God, I can run my life. And you realize kind of the futile thinking within this. And so we remember our creator, not just later when we get closer to death. Not just when we're out in nature seeing beautiful things. We remember our creator at all times, especially when we're young. 
knowing, and this is what the rest of the poem, the parable is going to do, knowing that days of failure and ruin eventually will come. And so we care about what we're remembering. And so let's walk through the rest of this poem because you're going to see, okay, that part's clear. The rest of it's not. (laughs) And so I call this the poem of what? Because that's really what it is. It's full of a lot of parallelism, which means something is like this, which is also like this, which is also like this. And you're going to see that it stretches from the origins of our creation and goes all the way to the end of the age when our spirit returns to the dust or our dust returns to dust and our spirit returns to the Lord. And so one of the things about this poem you're going to realize is that it helps us see our mortality. And when you see your mortality, that's a huge philosophical and mental marker in our lives because because when you realize those things it's what makes you different than so much of the rest of creation and when you remember our creator while realizing that truth that's even spiritually greater and so let me go ahead and uh give you two options before we go into this okay so i'm going to read it but i want you to you know one of the things about our church is lance is always really good of going here's a couple different ways that people look at this one of them that goes back all the way to the 170 a.d is people will allegorize this passage you're going to see them go through and they're going to look at each piece and it's going to become an allegory a metaphor a picture and they always have made it a picture of old age that everything you see here is a picture of old age the hard part is is that when you go through it not all of them line up not all commentators agree and the hard part is is people became so driven on that 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 even affected how they translated the hebrew into the english so they automatically defaulted to allegory but there's this other option and it's this idea of the parable of a household that as you go through this this is actually a parable more than it is an allegory It's a story to kind of show you something that the preacher in Ecclesiastes has been saying all along. And in biblical tradition, the figure of a house represents human achievements, success. It represents security and contentment. And the failure or ruin or collapse of that house shows up a lot. And you can see it in the New Testament with the wise and foolish builders of the house. Remember, the wise man built his house upon the rock. Foolish man built his house on the sand. You can see it in Wisdom's house in Proverbs 9 and in Isaiah and so many other places. And so while it could be an allegory of aging and death, it's more likely to be this parable about the failure of human efforts. The unpredictability and the unsurety of any and all human endeavors. The reality that nothing is really in our control. That everything in humanity will wear out, dissipate, and fade. Which is why we have to look to the one who is secure. The one who is in control. Our creator. Amen? You're going to see throughout the... If you look and you go back to everything we read in Ecclesiastes, old age was not a subject that particularly interested the preacher, and he rarely refers to it. And so this parable of the fate of human efforts makes very good sense because it actually takes you back to chapter 1 that Lance took us through, verses 2 to 9, to back up the theme that there's this contrast between everything that's failing and everything that's meaningless under the sun and how nature never changes. And so you have this transient humanity and this indifferent creation. And in and, and other parts of the, the wisdom literature in the Bible, so whether that's Proverbs or that's Job or that's Esther, um, what they call the, um, the five scrolls in the Old Testament, um, anytime that comes up, usually they'll relate a house's destruction to folly. Like if you remember the story of Job, his friends kept coming up and saying, everything ruined for you because of your sin. And he kept going, no, that is not the case. Everything ruined because this is the fate 
of all righteous or wicked. Right? And that was the back and forth. And here in Ecclesiastes, he's asserting that same thing Job was trying to stand for, that this is the fate of humanity, the result of life for all under the sun. And so we, like the preacher, are trying to seek out the God behind everything that we seek to grasp in this life under the sun. You're like, this is not very encouraging right now. Can we move to another book? <laughs> yes, let's go to Thessalonians, and that's a happier book, and do something like that. But, but you guys, whether we interpret it via the allegory of aging or we interpret it as the parable of the household, the message is the same. You remember God while there is opportunity because now is the youngest you will ever be. For certain things will happen to all, and it will terminate that possibility. And so we have to look at now and how we're making our decisions now. And so let's read the text. Let's walk through this part really fast. We want to spend more time on the back end of it. So verses 2 to 8 says, I have no pleasure in them, end of one, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut. When the sound of grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low, they are afraid also of what is high and tares are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper, oh, grasshopper, drags itself along and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the street before the silver cord is stapped or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to the God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Huge run-on sentence. That's not fair. If I wrote that in any of my master's programs, I would have got marked up for that. But here, you guys, you have him walking through, and I want you to just see something that has to do with the construction of the text. Because you'll see it says before three different times. And actually, throughout that whole passage, six different times, it's trying to take you back to that first point of remembering the Creator. It's saying, remember this before this happens. Remember this in the day when this happens. Remember this when this happens and before. And it keeps trying to give you this urgency with each piece mentioned. Because each of them can happen at any time and will eventually come. So I'm going to quickly try to cover a few of these, and then we're going to move on to the rest of the text. But, you know, the first one, when it talks about these evil days, these distressing, calamity-filled days where it says, I have no pleasure in them. He's just trying to bring up this reality that people sense sometimes as it's happening and before it's happening. One of the ways I hear it sometimes with high school students, and it breaks my heart every time, is people going, I just feel dead inside. And so it starts sometimes in this spiritual and this emotional place. And then it goes through into all the circumstances. Then in verse 2, it talks the sun about the sun and the light and the moon fading. And about these fading lights. And those always, whether it's an allegory of aging or it's an allegory of the household or a parable of the household, have to do with this idea of just recognizing that you're losing the, the vibrance in your eyes and in your life. Right? And then when it starts bringing up cl- more clouds after the rain, it's, this, it's this, seeing this picture of how progressively hard it is to throw off troubles and anxieties, especially when a storm rips through and you think it's done because the rain has stopped and then you see more clouds coming. And I don't know how many of you guys have been through something like that, where something hits and then before it's even done, something else hits. And before that's even done, something else hits. And that feeling of going, there's no break in this storm. 
Then you move on to verse 3 to 5, where now it goes through a list of the people. Four types of people of every age, of every gender, and of every role. Right? And it's talking about both those who are servants, those who are watchmen, the old, the rich, the poor, whoever it is. And it makes it very clear that everyone in that household is experiencing some type of downfall, some type of deterioration. Something is being lost. Something is going down. And when every man is ruined and the house is deserted, what you're going to see is that nature is unmoved and life still goes on even after those people fade. That's not very helpful. That's not very encouraging. He keeps going. Verse 5, the other half, he talks about almond trees. And there's, and there's, when I was telling you about how allegory affected how Hebrew translated the English, it focuses so much on the almond blossom that we miss the nuance in the passage that the Hebrew is also using a verb for awaken. And so with that almond piece, you realize that it's actually talking about the symbol of almond trees as a reawakening of nature and how nature keeps going through its seasons and blooming even after we are fading. And then when it starts talking about the grasshopper, and you know, I emphasized the, the Kung Fu version, actually the other translation of that is locusts. And when it says it's a grasshopper dragging, some people will try to say that's an older person dragging along. But it's also this picture, it can be this picture of a locust that has fed on so much that it can't even move because it's eaten so much stuff. And when would locusts come in and do that? When mankind is not there to fight them off, to keep things protected. And so that's why the locusts come in and they take over everything. Or it even uses this thing of, it says desire. But here's the hard part. That word for desire is the Hebrew word for a plant called caper, that has these um, little berries called caper berries. They're also called, um, the more um, technical name is capyrus spinosa. And they're found on ancient rocks, on ancient walls, and in deserted places. And so he's actually saying, hey, when the plant life all continues to grow after we're gone and our houses start falling on their own. And I've been in Israel. I've seen places where there's no one else there except tourists. And nature just grows in between the cracks. Then let's go on to verse 6. It talks about this bowl, this um, silver cord, this wheel, this pitcher. And it's talking about the ruin of the household and how things will just fall apart. If you've ever had your dishwasher, your washing machine, your refrigerator, your air conditioner, now's not a good time, and your pool filter all go out within a month, you know what this is talking about. And it doesn't matter how much duct tape you own. You can't fix these things with that. But it's giving you this picture of things being ruined in the household and breaking down. And you have to catch something because when it's talking about a silver cold and a golden bowl, that's an image for light that would hang from inside of a house, almost like a chandelier. When it's talking about a pitcher and it's talking about a cistern, those are things of water. Light and water are two of the biggest biblical imageries used in the scriptures. And so it's trying to say, when those things go, you're losing the essence of everything. Thank you for more depression. Then it has one part of verse 5 and a part of verse 7 that keeps making this truth as well that humanity is en route to a new home. And it just hints at this, of this eternal existence, and it doesn't unpack it. Unpack it. it just makes it clear that dust returns to the earth as it was and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. And so within all this, you're asking this question, how am I supposed to remember the Creator when all of this is happening? And it's to see that God is present at the beginning and the ending of life. That he most certainly is there throughout the totality of life. 
And he can give meaning to an otherwise meaningless existence. He can help us make sense out of the senselessness of ruin and insecurity and even death. And then he bookends the whole entire book with verse 8. And he says the same thing he said in chapter 1, verse 2. In Hebrew, it's Havel HaHavalim. Vanity of all vanities. It's all meaningless. It all fades. It's all nothing. And so you're like... Well, thank you. But what's cool is that he said it in the beginning and he said it in the end and he's given us a whole bunch of wisdom in between. But as we are entering and leaving through that same doorway, we're leaving with some new frameworks of approaching life. You leave not as the same people. You have new ways to understand life and purpose and identity. And he's helped us to see how meaningless life is without God. That all of this that he's talking about is meaningless if you do not have an encounter with the creator and the king. That there is little joy under the sun if we try to leave our creator out of his universe that he created. And so let's move on to the next part because verses 9 to 14 is where the the richness is. It's where the reminder is of how, how amazing all this. And it really tells you how the preacher sought wisdom and how he approached life because he has arrived at a position and he feels like he's done it through tedious work that fits with wisdom to address the way of life. It's not supposed to be read as chronicles of skepticism. It's not tried to be read as an advocacy of hedonism to live into just carnal desire. He is trying to give you wise ways of walking in the way of the Lord. And so it kind of goes through, and let me read verses 9 to 12 just as a start. It says, Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. And so just to give you some quick bullet points, he's saying look at all that the preacher has sought out, that he has pondered, that he has arranged. He is giving wisdom and and understanding of life, but he is not giving it professionally. He's giving it pastorally. He's trying to tell you how to live by that wisdom. He's careful, he's thorough, he's honest. He inspires the imagination and he gives fascinating considerations. And it tells us what he gives. He brought knowledge, which just means, yes, knowing about something, right? But he's talking about understanding life and knowing about faith and knowing about eternity and knowing about God and knowing about creation and knowing about life under the sun. And he wants to give you skill in living those things. And then it says he weighed and he arranged many proverbs. And proverbs literally mean living straight when things are crooked. He's trying to give people a way and often with just one sentence type of pieces of how to live straight when things are crooked or complicated. He gives words of delight. Words that are acceptable and pleasing and gracious that would have a penetrating effect on his listeners and his readers. But at no time did he ever dilute his message or flatter the people he was preaching to. He always used, and he says it at the end, honest words of truth. He did not confuse truth with dullness, but wrote in what in the Old Testament metaphor would be an attractive style. And yet, he did not let his brilliance run away with him so as to cause him to write less than the truth. He brought it, and he brought it the way we needed to hear it. Amen? 
And then he gives his own secondary parable on the approach. And he talks about these goads and he talks about these nails and he talks about this one shepherd. And if you don't know what a goad is, it's an eight foot to 10 foot long pole that farmers and shepherds would use when they were plowing with oxen. And if the oxen were going off the path because the farmer could see where he was trying to take them, he would take the pole and kind of jab them in the side. And then they would go, and they would move back. I think they make that sound. I haven't personally poked oxen to test this. But he would would direct them. And so a goad simply directed the animals where they wanted to go. And then when he says their nails securely fixed, those nails are not just, you know, a little painter's nail that you're putting that's like, you know, half an inch long into a wall. These are nails that are more similar to railroad spikes. And no, they're not the same type that they used on the cross. That one of the pictures in the same words is used for the type of nails, golden nails, that were used to secure the fastenings on the wall of the temple. These were massive nails. And he says, this wisdom is like these goads and it's like these nails. They tell us so many things and they can be painful and heavy, but they're effective. They push us, but they provide stability. And they give us dependability in God's wisdom. But he also says that they come from one shepherd. And a shepherd in scripture in the Old Testament was always the picture of a leader. But they've already been calling the writer of Ecclesiastes, Kohelet, the preacher. So why would they give him a different name at this point? Because they're not talking about him. They are talking about it coming from the one shepherd who is Yahweh, the Lord. Psalm 95, 5-6, I always remember this verse because I learned it as a hymn when I was young. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker, because he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. And that's a, that's a psalm that makes it so clear. God is creator and he is shepherd. This wisdom comes from the one shepherd. And so you are getting the authority of God in this book. They are not merely the musings of a man. They are part of the inspired revelation of the almighty God. And so we don't just admire their artistry and respect their integrity. We submit to their authority. And I like how he finishes in verse 12 there. He says, beware of anything beyond these truths. And anybody that's in school understands what he writes next. Too much study, too much reading, not good for you. And all my other guys who have all been at Jessup, they all make very personal reference to that. Two of them just graduated in May, and Brett, who was doing communion here, is finishing in December. And they're all like, preach it. Bring it, right? Because they're looking at it going, come on. You are, you are so right about that. And he's just trying to stress that we need to stick to what we know is true because there's always going to be more opinions, more knowledge. There's always going to be another book, another blog, another article, another video, another clip, whatever it is. And he's just saying, beware, because you can spend the rest of your life reading everything and yet doing nothing. Study can become a prison. It can become something that never allows you to live out what you're learning. And so that's what leads him to this final instruction, which is these last two verses. Because at the end of this quest, with all the observations on life under the sun, he gives what he calls the conclusion of the matter. Look at verses 13 and 14. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now, here's one thing that's an interesting piece, and uh, Brett actually was the one that caught it in our research. In Jewish tradition, they read it in opposite. They read verse 14 first and verse 13 second. You're like, that's not linear. I don't like it. 
They do it because they believe that anytime God is even inspiring that, he wants the harder stuff to be heard first and the beautiful stuff to be heard second. And so we're going to break it down that way. So when it says in verse 14 that God, that every deed will be, in, in every deed, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil, the preacher is now placing his final emphasis not on enjoyment. Right? Because multiple times throughout this, he said, hey, eat, drink, and enjoy everything under the sun because everything's meaningless. Everything's toil. Everything's vanity. He goes, no, here, I'm not going to just emphasize that. I'm going to help you remember God and be mindful of the coming judgment that all those things that you do under the sun are being watched. It echoes actually what comes up in chapter 11, verse 9 that Eric covered last week, that it says, walk in the way of your heart and the sight of your eyes But know for all of these things, God will bring judgment. And so if there's a God who does judge us and sees everything we're doing, then everything we do under the sun, all that appears meaningless, everything matters. That is not all there is. If all we were doing was eating, drinking, purchasing, selling, going to church, driving around in our cars and there's nothing being watched, and there's nothing after this, then it is meaningless. But he's saying, judgment tells us that there is something above and within all this. And judgment actually brings meaning. If there is a God who judges the world, then there is meaning in this life for what eternity looks like. And that changes everything. And so although um, the preacher would like to know more of the total plan of God, he knows enough to be held responsible for what he does or fails to do. And although the word judgment is a difficult term to hear, especially in the church, and especially when we tend to have this idea that judgment is only the God of the Old Testament and love is the God of the New Testament, which is a total inaccuracy, in light of what we've heard Solomon say over and over in this book, that all is meaningless, we find that judgment actually gives meaning. It sets everything in light of the creator and the one that we are to remember. And what I love is that when you do bring in the New Testament, you realize if God is judging you by seeing you and what you have done in every day of life under the sun, whether in public or in secret. Because lots of times when we're talking to somebody about whether or not we deserve heaven, we don't automatically go to all the secret stuff. We look at what we think people perceive on the outside. But when you look at all that and you realize that God is looking at us, then you go. If I have a relationship with Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ says that he stands in my place of judgment, it means that God does not look at you. He looks at his son on the cross and he says, he is forgiven. And that's why an encounter with God is everything. And that's what takes us to verse 13. Because the book all the way through has been a priority check. Asking us on what the purpose of life is. Is it this or that? Whatever you hold highest, everything that you can try to hold high here on earth will come to ruin and destruction. It's vanity. It's meaningless. And the bottom line, what he wants you to understand is the way you live life under the sun is you fear God. You respect, you honor, you worship him. This is not a fear that makes you run. It's a fear that makes you bow. 
And the phrase comes up actually seven times in the book of Ecclesiastes. And the word respect of God or awe of God seems much too weak. And if you talk about dread or terror, it seems too strong. Because the way we associate fear is we have fear of evil, violent, and abusive people. We have fear of snakes and lions and spiders. We have fear of punishment and pain and death. We have fear of losing something or someone that we love. But the fear of the Lord actually leads, leads us to a proper view of ourselves. It puts us in a place of humility and allows us to learn from God and surrender everything to Him. It sees what it is within us that keeps us from being able to face God, that we don't own our lives. Because life is a gift of God, as Acts 17 makes so clear. We are stewards of something given to us, and one day we will give an account to God of what we have done with the gift. So how do you live a life fearing God? I love this Latin phrase that to me, ever since I read it, has shaped how I try to approach everything in integrity and honesty and truth, and it's this Latin term, coram dio, before the face of God. You live every minute, every hour, every decision at home, at work, with your spouse, with your kids, with your coworkers, on your sports team, in your classes. You live all of it before the face of God. Because everything is before Him. He does not miss anything. And only what He is doing within our life is what is going to be remembered. So we recognize God's enduring work that he's freely extending the blessings of joy and life to us. And to me, another way of understanding this fearing God is to understand this idea of the contrast of other things we can fear. Because if you're not fearing God, you are fearing something or someone else under the sun. In our discipleship kingdom, that we've, our discipleship world that we've been talking about here at Bridgeway, our kingdom, sorry, discipleship world, we talk about this, this covenant triangle and we talk about this picture of approval, appetite, and ambition. That the, one of the fears that drives us in our identity is that we want to make sure we have enough to have the stuff we want or to eat the stuff we want or to drink the stuff we want. And that always, that fear of not having it dictates so much of our life. Or approval. We want people to like us. We want to please people. We want so much of that that we let that fear dictate how we live our lives. Or ambition, progress, gain. That we feel like if we're not moving on up to the east side, right? If we're not doing that, then we fear that everyone else is going to look at that, whether it's something your grandparents said to you a long time ago, or your parents say to you, or your teachers are saying to you, or you feel like living up to the Joneses means... If you let all those things and those fears shape you, life in this world will feel meaningless. I like what Oswald Chambers says. He says, the remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. So you're fearing something. It's who you're going to fear. And so that naturally brings us to the second part of his phrase, because it's not just fearing God. He says, obey and keep his commandments. Obedience is the evidence of fearing God. Walking according to his purpose and his path is what shapes. And a lot of people look at this and they go, well, this is just wisdom literature. This is actually a late book. No, this is a truth that comes from the law of God. In the book of Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 to 14, it actually says all throughout that section that we live a life 
fearing God and obeying his commandments. Let me just read it to you really briefly here. It says, and now Israel, this is verses 12 to 14. What does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord. This is not the first time somebody has written this. He is repeating what God has told mankind from the beginning. And he's going, you cannot miss it in the toil of life under the sun. When you get into the routine, when you get into all this, the one you know, the one you love, the one you encounter directs how you live. And that is going to bring you blessing. And so when we fear God, we are almost overwhelmed with him. We rightly elevate his view, his word, his will as most important. And we do what he wants us to do. We obey. Jesus Christ himself says it in John 15. Verses 14 and 21. If you love him, obey my commands. That was part of Jesus' words in the Last Supper in John. If you love me, you will obey my commands. It's evidence that you fear and you recognize this. And this is the whole duty of humanity. Did you catch that? When he says, this is the end of the matter, this is the whole duty of man, he's actually saying, this applies to all, and this is what life is about, no matter how old or young you are. Because now is the youngest you'll ever be. You know him, you fear him, you obey him. And the only way to break this gain and progress mentality, this occupation is to step back from our world system, step back from ourself, and see that what's going to affect our life the most is our relationship with God. That there is someone above all that is under the sun worth remembering. Our Creator. God has given meaning to an otherwise meaningless life. That's what Ecclesiastes has been saying all the way through. Now I'm going to finish with a statement from someone you wouldn't expect this to come from. Two more lines and a prayer. If I go longer than that, you can throw your Bible at me. Somebody wrote this. Ecclesiastes is one of my favorite books. It's a book about a character who wants to find out why he's alive, why he was created. He tries knowledge. He tries wealth. He tries experience. He tries everything. And you hurry to the end of the book. And I can't tell you how many people have told me, when are we going to be done with Ecclesiastes? It feels like it's just the same thing. You hurry to the end of the book to find out why he has done this. And it says, remember your creator. And in a way, it's such a letdown. Yet it isn't. No, it isn't. Getting to know our creator before we grow old and die is the most important thing we can ever do. Bono, you too. See, this is stuff that people are seeking truth. They're seeking out life. When we forget about God, the preacher in this book prompts us to remember him. And the moment we begin to think that we're going to live forever, that's when he takes the goad, the wisdom, and he pokes us and reminds us that soon everything will come to an end. And so we become mindful of God in all our circumstances. And so in our world that can seem hopeless, and I don't know about you, but my wife and I are talking about all the stuff going on in our nation and our world right now. When our world seems hopeless, you then realize that God came into our world. He came under the sun. He saw the monotony. He saw the meaninglessness and said, I am making all things new.
Lance said that in the very first week. The Creator remembers you, even when you don't remember Him. And no matter what you are doing on this earth, no matter what you're dealing with, remember your Creator and your God because He is a God who dreams and acts bigger than anything you could possibly imagine. So let me pray for you. And then just leave with that question of, what am I waiting for? Let's pray. Lord, the plants don't ask for meaning in life. The animals don't search for significance. The heavens declare your glory, and yet they do not ask how they should live. But men and women here in this room, whom you also created, desire an answer of how we can live a life that matters. And already, Lord, we have read that we should fear you and keep your commandments. Teach us, please, what that means. Give us hearts to expect it and hearts which have been transformed to look to Jesus, our Savior, and to live in meaning through the power of the Holy Spirit who you have given freely to dwell in us. We don't want to wait any longer till the next thing breaks or fails or fades. We want to know you. We want to fear you. We want to obey you now. Because now is the youngest we will ever be, Lord. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now, if you need prayer, the prayer team is going to come forward. And if you just want to talk or you need prayer for something specific, please pray. Hey, go say thank you to some of our teens for the takeover weekend and have a good morning.